Do you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you're visiting here today for the first time, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke now for about a year, I guess, a little, maybe a little over a year, and uh, we are almost two-thirds of the way through. We come to a famous chapter. It's probably the most famous parable that Jesus tells among all of the ones he tells. Um, it's a parable of the prodigal son is the big chunk of that today. We're going to read the whole chapter um, as all three parables that Jesus tells uh, really belong together. Luke chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 1 and read all the way to the very end of the chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that's near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her neighbors and her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this day was my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. 
and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Very, very moving parables, delightful parables, parables which speak to us about the character of God, the love of God for us. I'm going to go through all three parables today because these parables really belong together. They should be considered a trilogy or a triad of parables. The parable of the lost, of the lost sheep in verses 3 through 7, the parable of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10, and the parable of the lost son, or we know it more familiarly as the prodigal son, parable of the prodigal son in verses 11 through 32. These parables go together, not only because Jesus told them together in the same setting, but really thematically, they, they have the same message. They're communicating the same idea uh, that Jesus is, is trying here to get to the Pharisees and the scribes who are hearing this message. The same overarching message that I think we need to hear as well today. So what I want to do is look at this, not like we normally do verse by verse, but I want to kind of first lay out the setting, then just briefly review the parables, and then come back and look at those overarching themes that are central to all three of those parables. So I think we need to keep, first of all, the setting and context in mind for understanding this passage. And there are two important contextual observations that I would make here that I think shape our understanding of the parables. First of all, notice that Jesus here is meeting with the tax collectors and sinners. It says in verse 1 that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus. And this is important, I think, because it comes on the heels of the previous passage. Remember, if you were here last week, that Jesus was teaching about discipleship. He was instructing the crowds about calling them to become disciples, to, to move not just from being a face in the crowd, but to relate to him in a more formal and committed way, to actually be a disciple who sticks with him, who remains with him, who learns from him, so that they might become like him. But Jesus concluded that passage, that teaching on discipleship, with an exhortation to to hear what Jesus was saying, to process it, to understand it, and then to act on it. Look at, chap- at back at the previous verse, chapter 45, verse 35, the very end of that verse. Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, you've heard what I've said. Don't just let it be auditory waves that make these neural vibrations and come to your brain and kind of just let it sit there. You're just simply hearing the words, but understand what I'm saying. Understand and and then act upon those words. And it appears as we move into chapter 15, verse 1, that there were some who did that. Notice in verse 15, in verse 1, that it says that tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to do what? To hear Jesus. These tax collectors and sinners were responding to Jesus' call. The good news of the gospel had, had done something in the lives of these sinful people. They had delighted, it had delighted them. It prompted them to, to come closer to Jesus, to hear Him more and to respond to His call. The second contextual observation comes in verse 2. Notice that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled about Jesus' association with tax collectors and sinners. They say in verse 2, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the scribes are outraged that Jesus would fellowship with such despised and sinful people. Now the word sinner there, the category of sinners that they refer to, Luke refers to in verse 1, they refer to in verse 2, were notoriously sinful people. These were people with a a scandalous reputation. People that were guilty of, of publicly known sin. These were 
prostitutes and tax collectors and murderers and thieves, those who willingly, defiantly defied the Jewish law. In fact, Luke even sort of categorizes one subset of this group. He, he mentions tax collectors in particular as an exceptional class of sinners. These, these men were Jews who collected the taxes and tariffs and tolls and customs on behalf of the Roman government, who, of course, was ruling over the Jewish people. The Jews hated the Romans. They were oppressive. One of the reasons they hated the Romans was because of these oppressive taxes and, and tolls and customs and so forth. But these tax collectors were in cahoots with the Roman government. And they would take these jobs to collect the taxes, and they were even more notoriously dishonest because the Roman government said, this is what you must collect. In fact, the tax collectors would bid out for the job. They would sort of be in this bidding war, and they would, the Romans would take whoever was the highest bidder. I can get $100,000 worth of taxes. I can get $150,000 worth of taxes. And so you kind of laid out your quota, and whatever you collected over and above that was yours to keep. And so these tax collectors were notoriously dishonest. They, by extortion, by their greed, collected more than what was necessary for the Romans, and they pocketed the money for themselves. And so the Jews despised these tax collectors. They associated with the enemy. They were, they were greedy. They were extorting. They were, they were abusing their fellow Jews. These were sinful people. The Pharisees just cannot stand the fact that Jesus is associating with these people. And that makes sense because the Pharisees and the scribes prided themselves as being the faithful among the Jews. They were known for their piety. They saw themselves as the faithful remnant within Judaism. They believed that they were honoring God by their right obedience to the law. And so these tax collectors and sinners did not meet the righteous standards that the Pharisees and scribes had set for other Jews. And so, the Pharisees and scribes looked down upon these tax collectors and sinners. They despised them. They rejected them. They shamed them because of their sinfulness. How in the world could one associate with these sinful people? And so when Jesus not only receives, and the word receives there in verse 2 also means welcome. He does not just simply letting them come to him. He's welcoming them to him. When, the, when Jesus not only receives and welcomes the tax collectors and sinners to gather with him, and then he eats with them, the Pharisees and scribes just go nuts. Jesus, if nothing else, had the reputation of being a, a great teacher. Had the reputation of being a prophet. He was one who claimed to be the Messiah, the one who would lead God's people to the kingdom of God. How could this man fellowship with these people? In fact, the word, the phrase, this man in verse 2, is kind of a derogatory term for Jesus. This man? How could this man associate with these people? In their eyes, Jesus is committing an egregious offense against God. He is committing an egregious violation of the law of God. He is, he is acting outside of all religious propriety. But Jesus, in eating with these people, as we said before on several different occasions, food and feasting and banquets happen a lot in the Gospel of Luke, and it's a sign of intimacy. It's a sign of deep fellowship. Jesus is not just simply having a meal with these people. He is entering into close relationship with them. He is entering into an extended, committed relationship with them. And the Pharisees and scribes find this association with sinful people to be offensive. <clears throat> now, to this objection, Jesus tells 
three parables that explain why he welcomes and associates with tax collectors and sinners. And in these parables, Jesus is revealing to us, he's revealing to them, God's redemptive plan. How God saves people. Who does he save? How does he save them? Why does he save them? What is God doing by allowing his Messiah to eat with such sinful people? And where have the Pharisees and scribes gone wrong in making this accusation about Jesus? So let's look at these parables real quick, just to get a a general gist, a summary of what's happening in them, and then circle back to sort of the main ideas. So that first parable is in verses 3 through 7, the parable of the lost sheep. And in this parable, there's a shepherd who has a flock of a hundred sheep, and one of those sheep has gone missing. It is lost. And so the shepherd, again, without much detail here, the shepherd goes looking for that one lost sheep. He leaves the 99 other sheep in his flock out in the open country, but he goes and searches high and low until he finds the lost sheep. And when he does find the lost sheep, he comes back rejoicing carries the the, the sheep over his shoulders, brings it back with tender, affectionate care, restores it to the flock, and then he calls his friends and neighbors over for a feast to celebrate finding the sheep that had been lost. In verses 8 through 10, we have the second parable, the parable of the lost coin. And this this parable, there's a woman who has ten coins, and she loses one of them. You might think, well, that's no big deal, but each coin is worth, it's basically the wages of a day laborer, all right? So if you were a day laborer in ancient, in ancient Israel this time, you go out to work for a day, you work a full day, 8, 10, 12 hours, whatever the day was, and at the end of the day, you received a, a denarius. And that was your wage, and that wage supplied your, your sustenance for that day. So this is basically one-tenth of her income. This isn't like looking for a quarter, right? You drop the quarter, you're looking for a quarter because you just want to have the quarter. This would be maybe more equivalent to us, like maybe losing 100 bucks might not be devastating to most of us who are maybe upper middle class, but it would be a significant chunk of change, right? You'd be upset over losing 100 bucks. You probably would spend a little bit of time looking for it. And that's what this woman does. She lights a lamp, probably because her home has no windows. It's dark in there. She lights a lamp. She's looking around. She gets her broom out. She sweeps around, hoping to jostle the coin loose so she can see it, maybe even hear it, hear the jingle of it clanging against something else. And she finally finds it. And when she finds it, she also rejoices. She does like what the shepherd does and calls her friends and neighbors over for a great celebration, to celebrate, to mark this joyful occasion in finding her lost coin. And then we come to the last parable, verses 11 to 32, the parable of the prodigal son, a very familiar story to us, right? In this parable, a landowner's younger son demands his inheritance prematurely. The father graciously grants his son his request. The son cashes out his inheritance, makes it liquid, and then he travels to a a distant country, leaves home altogether, leaves behind his family, and goes to a distant country. And there in that far land, he squanders his inheritance in undisciplined and immoral living. With all of his resources now gone then, he suffers desperate need he hires himself out to a pig farmer. Now, again, imagine you're a Jew hearing this story. Imagine you're a Jew living this story. Pigs, are the mo- they're unclean, but they're sort of, the, sort of the preeminent unclean animal, right? And this guy, the only way he can somehow come close to meeting his needs is to work 
for a pig farmer. In fact, it says he's so hungry here, he desires to eat what the pigs ate. Either the farm, pig farmer won't let him eat what the pigs eat, or that food is so disgusting he cannot eat it himself. And so this young son has nothing, and he has no one to turn to. I love what it says in verse 17. It says, when he came to himself, in this moment of lucidity, in a, in a moment of, of, of clear thinking, he kind of came to his wits. I might use that expression. He realizes that the servants in his father's house are much better off than he is as a hired out laborer for a pig farmer. And so he thinks, maybe I can just be a servant in my father's house. They're well fed. They're taken care of. Here's what I'll do. I'll go back home. I'll tell my father I'm not worthy to be a son, but I would love to be your servant. Hoping that his father, appealing to his father, that his father would take him back as a servant. But as we see that when the child, when the son returns home, his father sees him while he's still at a distance. And he leaves his house. He runs out to greet his son. He gathers him up in a great embrace, lavishes him with kisses, and before the son can even get out the full request he's going to make, his father orders his servants to bring a robe and a ring and a pair of sandals for him, signs of sonship. And then he tells his servants to go and kill the fatted calf and prepare a great feast to celebrate the fact that his son who was once lost is now found again. The son who he considered dead is now alive. He has returned home and the father restores him back to his family. Now what's the message that Jesus is communicating in these parables. Well, I think we can sum everything down into two main points. And here's the thing about parables. The, the, the goal of a parable, when, when, the, when Jesus teaches in parables, parables are supposed to be illustrative stories, stories that are familiar to that culture and lifestyle that are, that are meant to, to make a central point. So sometimes we can maybe try to allegorize these and press the points a little bit too far. And, and we oftentimes don't have the details. Jesus is concerned with teaching a main point. A key idea, or a couple of key ideas. I think there are two that stand out in all three of these parables. Number one, first key point. Human beings are spiritually lost and cut off from a relationship with God. Human beings are spiritually lost and cut off from a relationship with God. Notice how each of these three parables emphasizes the lostness of an object or person that's in question. In the first parable... The one sheep that is separated from the 99 is lost, right? Look at verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost? That word lost appears twice in that verse. It appears again in verse 6 when he says, that he, when he rejoices, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. There's an emphasis here on the lost condition of the sheep. In the second parable, the parable of the lost coin, the woman's coin is lost. Verse 8, Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. We're emphasizing there the lostness of the coin. Even in the third parable, the parable of the prodigal son, even though the son leaves of his own volition, what does the father consider him to be? He considers him to be lost, right? Look at verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. He repeats it again in verse 32 as he is trying to exhort the older brother who's got a bad attitude about his brother coming home. This child is considered by the father to be lost. So in all three parables, the emphasis of the lost condition of the sheep, the coin, and the son is emphasized, right? And that emphasis is further, is further emphasized by the contrast of being found. So you have something that is lost, and then it's found. So both these ideas together are really contributing to the fact that this lostness, the lost condition of the thing or the person, is to be emphasized. Now, what's the point? The condition of being lost is an illustration or a metaphor for every person's spiritual condition and the state of his or her relationship with God. We are the lost sheep. We are the lost coin. We are the prodigal son. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son are all metaphors. They're all illustrations of every person's spiritual condition and the state of his or her relationship with God. Again, the lost sheep is lost. He's cut off from his shepherd. He's cut off from, from, the, from, from the rest of the flock. He's beyond the care and protection of his shepherd. The lost coin is lost. It's missing. It's absent. The prodigal son is lost. Right? He happily squanders all of his possessions in reckless living, but yet his father considers him lost. He is morally depraved. He is cut off from a relationship with his father. In fact, the father even considers that fact that he's not just lost, but he's also dead. Did you catch that in verse 24? For this my son, in fact, he even says it first, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So these ideas of being lost and being spiritually lost and being spiritually dead go together. In the father's mind, when the son left, he was not only lost, but he was also dead. And Jesus uses here these illustrations, these metaphors to describe the spiritual condition, really of all people, but in the context of this passage, he's, he's describing the, this is the spiritual condition of the tax collectors and sinners, right? This is who they are before God. This illustrates their spiritual condition. This illustrates the nature of their relationship with God. The tax collectors and sinners are lost. And again, this applies not just to them, but it applies to us. These metaphors apply to us. If you're a Christian, these parables remind us of what was once true about us. We were lost. If you came here this morning to church today, and you're not a Christian, these parables accurately describe what you really are. You are spiritually lost. Again, the parable of the prodigal son would go even further and say that you are spiritually dead. Now, why? Why are we spiritually lost? Why are we spiritually dead? The reason is sin. The reason that we are lost is because of sin. Where sin entered the world when Adam and Eve, at the very beginning, disobeyed God's command, and they chose to act out upon their own desires. We refer to this as an act of rebellion. They rebelled against God. And in doing so, they became lost. They died in that moment. In the moment of their sin, they died, spiritually speaking, though their physical death would still yet be way off. Adam and Eve were cut off from a relationship with God. What do they do? What do Adam and Eve do when they eat the forbidden fruit once they discover their nakedness? 
They go and attempt to hide themselves from God. That, that hiding is a sense of, of, of distance, right? A sense of, of broken relationship. They now have coverings of fig leaves to try to, to that separate them from God in, a, in an illustrative way. They were cut off from a relationship with God. The cause of their spiritual condition, the cause of this new state of relationship with God was because of their sin. And because they sinned, we are born sinners, right? We are born with a sinful nature. But we can't just simply blame it on Adam and Eve because when we are given our first opportunity, what do we do? We follow right after their example. We sin ourselves. We rebel against God's commands. We follow after our own desires. Our sin reveals that we are spiritually lost, and that we are spiritually dead, that we are cut off from a relationship with God. Isaiah writes this, Isaiah 53, verse 6, again, in a very illustrative way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So as we read that parable of the lost sheep, Isaiah takes that same metaphor and applies it to us. We are lost. Like Jesus, Paul also uses the image of death to characterize our spiritual condition and the state of our relationship toward God. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, being spiritually lost doesn't mean that God doesn't know where we are, right? Like Adam and Eve, they went and they hid from God, thinking that God would not find them. God knows exactly where you are. You're not lost in the sense that God doesn't know where you are. You're not lost in the sense you've somehow escaped God's notice, that you're no longer under his watchful eye. But it does mean that we do not share company with him. We do not have fellowship with God. And Paul, like Jesus, equates spiritual lostness to spiritual death, as we've seen in verse 24 and verse 32. We are spiritually dead because we are cut off from the one who is life itself. That's what death is, right? It's like cold is the absence of heat, right? Death is the absence of life. God created, God is, the, is, is, is life itself, right? He is the one true and living God. He's not merely one who gives life. He is life. What did He do in creation? He created Adam and Eve. He breathed into them the breath of life and they became a living being. They were totally and completely alive. But when they sinned against God and cut themselves off from God, what did they do? They cut themselves off from the source of their life. That is how they became dead. So to be spiritually dead is to be cut off from God. When we sin, we are spiritually dead because we are cut off from God. To be spiritually lost means to be alienated from God's presence. We can't have fellowship with Him when we are lost. We've gone astray from Him. We have wandered from Him. We're not near and close to Him or connected to Him. We are, we are away. We are separated. We are alienated from God. So in these parables, Jesus is illustrating every person's true spiritual condition and the state of every person's relationship with God apart from his salvation. So if you're a Christian this morning, again, this is what we once were. These 
passages, these parables illustrate what we once were. And it's good for us to be reminded of this. Why we want to be reminded of that old way of life? Because it makes the gospel sweeter to us. Makes it makes Christ more precious to us. It makes what God has done for us in Christ more delightful, more soul-lifting, more encouraging. It buoys us up. It enlivens us with a deeper love for God and a greater devotion for Christ. When you kind of start to sulk around in your own sin, and then you remember what Christ has done for you, doesn't it kind of just buoy you up? Doesn't it just overwhelm you with gratitude? Don't you want to serve it? We all know the ebbs and flows of the Christian life, right? Moments when we're down and moments when we're up. When we are down and we're reminded of the precious gospel message, it lifts us up and we, want, we just get on fire once again for Him. We just want to serve Him. We just want to give ourselves to Him in greater devotion. We are empowered to know the gospel. We are empowered to walk in truth. We're empowered to walk in victory for the glory of God. So it's important for us to be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. It's also important for us to remember the dangers of sin. Don't go back that way again. Do you want to be like the prodigal son and go back to the distant country? Do you want to live with reckless living? Do you want to come to the point of complete desperation? Do you want to eat what the pigs eat? This knowledge of what we once were reminds us of the dangers of sin. It warns us to strive for the narrow door and to keep walking in the narrow way. It calls us to avoid temptation, to keep pursuing our sanctification, and to keep pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It tells us not to abandon the race set before us. It reminds us of the life and destiny that remains for us if we will stay true to the path. So if you're a Christian, remember what God has delivered you from. And let it be a great motivator. Let it fuel your love for God. May it, may it fuel your commitment for God. May it fuel your walk for God. And if you're not a Christian this morning, these parables give you a clear and honest picture of what you really are and what you really need. You need, the truth that we can share with you is, you know, it would be really easy to say, you know what, you're okay. That's what a lot of people are saying today. You're okay. You're not okay. If you don't have Christ, you're not okay. You're lost. You're spiritually dead. You're alienated from God. You're cut off from a relationship with Him. And you will find yourself, like the prodigal son, in deep need and desperation. And so it's important for you to understand your true spiritual condition. And it's important for you to understand you can only find hope in Christ. Jesus tells us these parables to show us what we really are. But he also tells these parables to show us what God has done for us in Christ. So that we will no longer remain lost. No longer remain cut off from Him. That brings us to the second main point of these parables. And that's this. God seeks out the lost to save them and bring them back into a relationship with Himself. God seeks out the lost to save them and bring them back into a relationship with Himself. Notice again how each parable emphasizes and celebrates the fact that a lost person or a lost object is found, right? The lost sheep 
is found. We're told twice in verses 5 and 6. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So the shepherd goes out after the sheep, searches for it high and low, and he finally finds the sheep. And when he finds him, he restores him back to the flock, and he celebrates with his friends and neighbors. The lost coin, we're told, also is found in verse 9. Twice the woman mentions the fact that she has found her lost coin. When she has searched for it diligently and she finds it, she rejoices in the fact that she finds it. And again, like the neighbor, and li- or like the shepherd, she calls her neighbors and her friends over for a feast. When's the last time you invited your friends over when you found, you know, a couple of bucks what, when you're doing the laundry, right? Put, something fell out of, the, out of the pocket or something, you had a couple dollars in your pocket, and you're doing the laundry, you're like, oh man, there's a couple of bucks. You kind of get a little excited about it. Do you call your friends and relatives over and have a party about it? I mean, it's kind of almost over the top this woman would would be so excited about losing, about finding a lost coin, and yet she rejoices. That's part of this here. Jesus wants us to see there's great joy in the fact that this coin has been found. The lost son is found. Again, we see that in verse 24, in verse 32. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. The prodigal son returns home. The father runs out to greet him while he is still on the way with hugs and kisses. This son whom he thought was lost and dead and never coming home rejoices over the fact that he is alive, that he is found. So like the first point about our lostness, the finding of the sheep, the finding of the coin, the finding of the son, illustrate God's salvation of spiritually lost people and his restoration of them to a new relationship with himself. This condition of being found illustrates God's salvation and restoration or reconciliation. There's a couple of things to kind of tease out about that, I think, that come out in the parable. First, notice that God is the one who finds and saves what is lost. God is the one who finds and saves what is lost. The lost sheep doesn't come back on its own, does it? does not come back on its own accord. It's lost. It cannot return because it is lost. It must be found because it is lost. And the shepherd is the one who goes out to find the sheep. In fact, he leaves the remaining flock in order to go out and search for the missing sheep. And when he finds it, he brings it home and returns it safely to his care. The lost coin does not return of its own accord. How many times have you lost an inanimate object and you just hoped and prayed it could like cry out so you could find it, right? Something, you lost your phone, you lost your keys. Wish they could just like magically like jingle themselves so you could find it. It's so important for you to have. But it doesn't happen. It's lost. This coin is lost. It cannot return. It must be found because it is lost. And so the woman here who has lost the coin goes searching diligently for the coin until she finds it. The lost, sir, the lost son does return on his own. He willingly leaves his father, left him behind, to go and to live in this far country and to spend all of his inheritance in reckless living. But he comes home only to the point, only when he comes to the point of, of real desperation. 
It's in that moment of mental clarity in verse 17 when he came to himself and his mind has been awakened by the cruel reality of the situation that he humbles himself and returns home. And when he returns home, he doesn't expect to live as a son. He expects to live as a servant. That's the condition. I'm not going to return home as a son. That's out of the question. I violated too too much cultural propriety here. I'm going to go and live as a servant in my father's house. There's no way, not even thinking, not even asking to be accepted back as a son. And yet, what happens? The father restores him. The father meets him even before he gets to the house. He begins to lavish upon him all of the accoutrements, all of the signs of sonship. Friends, God is the one who saves. God is the one who takes initiative to find us when we are spiritually lost and bring us back into a relationship with Himself. These parables here are illustrations of what God has done for us. We would not go looking for God unless He first came looking for us. Ephesians 2. We already talked about verses 1 through 3. The fact that we are dead, spiritually dead, hopelessly separated from Christ, Verse 4 changes, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Who's doing the saving there? It's God. Who's doing the finding? Who is going after the lost sheep? Who is searching diligently for the lost coin? Who is anticipating and welcoming the lost son. It is God. It is God. God is the one in His great salvation who has taken the initiative to come and find us. Notice also God's compassion in saving us. Let's go back to that Ephesians passage for a moment because we see that illustrated there beautifully. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4-7. to but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In those verses we have mercy, we have love twice, we have grace twice, we have kindness, we have here sort of the full picture of God's love and compassion for His people. That's exactly the kind of response we see in the Father's reception of the prodigal son. It's actually quite moving. I wish we could maybe detail this more. We don't have time. But this scene is quite moving emotionally. It's also quite shocking to Jewish ears. Several things the Father does here are things that would be beyond normal familial protocol. First, notice that the father runs out to his son while he is still a far way off. Why, was, why, why would the father run out to the son? How could the father know that the son was even coming? Unless he was looking for his son. Unless he was anticipating that his son would return. He was almost as if expecting, waiting out on the front porch day after day, looking down, even as the sun maybe is going down, looking down the the long winding road, waiting to see if his son is returning home. He is out there looking. Compassion. Second, the father abandons traditional protocol by going out to meet the son. 
The son has really shamed his father here. He's had, in the Jewish word, a lot of chutzpah, a lot of boldness, brashness, to ask his father for his inheritance and then to go out and to live the way he wants to live. He has shamed his father. And yet, the father, instead of waiting for the son to come to him in humility, begging for forgiveness, goes out to the son before he even gets home. He breaks the traditional standards of that time, illustrating his love and compassion for his son. Third, notice that the father runs. Running was an undignified activity for an older man. I can relate to that. I've tried lately. It doesn't look good. It's, it's just all out of propriety. I'm done running for my life. But this father, as an older man, does something so undignified as to run out to his son. Why would he do that? His love for his son. His compassion for his son. He is willing to break with tradition just to get to his son. And finally then, when he gets to the son, he embraces him. The word there is to fall upon his neck. He is embracing him tightly. He is lavishing him with kisses. Both the language and the Greek and the imagery and the Hebrew culture are both very, very emotional. The father is not angry with his son, but he is grateful for his son's return. And he expresses that gratitude with great affection. Friends, God is a compassionate God. God loves and cares for and has grace upon and shows mercy to sinful people. Why does he do that? Why does God save sinful people? Because that's who God is. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is loving. And he delights in saving people. This is what Titus 3, 4 through 7 says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of his works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have salvation because of the grace and kindness and mercy of God. And so by this parable, Jesus is illustrating here to the tax collectors and the sinners what God is really like. He's showing what God desires for them. He is showing what God's disposition is towards them. At the same time, he's rebuking the Pharisees and scribes for thinking wrongly about God and for misrepresenting him to the Jewish people. Third, notice here the result of God's saving work. There's two sort of results to this that we see in these parables. First, notice that sinners are reconciled to God. Sinners are restored to a right relationship with God. The lost sheep is restored to the shepherd. The lost coin is restored to the woman. The relationship between the lost son and his father is restored. Notice again that the father receives the, his son not as a servant, but as a son. The son takes his rightful place back in his father's house. That's reconciliation. That's restoration of relationship. The relationship between God and man had been cut off by sin, but it has now been restored by God as he reconciles sinners to himself. And that new relationship, that renewed relationship is marked by peace and joy. Paul writes in Colossians 1:21, And you who once were alienated, lost, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Christ, has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's why Christ came. 
to reconcile lost and dead sinners. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God now because of what Christ has done for us, and that peace with God has brought us not to simply on right terms, but in right relationship. We have access into this grace in which we stand. Notice the second result of God's saving work here. So God reconciles, but also notice that the second result here is that God rejoices over the reconciliation of lost sinners. The shepherd rejoices when he finds his lost sheep, right? Calling his friends and his neighbors to come and to celebrate this great feast with him. In fact, Jesus even points out that spiritual application in verse 7. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In other words, God here rejoices in his work of salvation. He rejoices. All of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents and comes to a knowledge of the truth. The woman rejoices when she finds her lost coin. Her joy is so overwhelming that she calls her neighbors and her friends again to celebrate with her, to have a great feast with her. And again, Jesus makes the application, the spiritual application in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. God rejoicing once again in his work of salvation. That when he saves sinners, he rejoices. They are celebrating in heaven. The father, we see in the story of the prodigal son, the father rejoices with great joy when the prodigal returns. He runs out to his son, he embraces him, he kisses him. He calls for his servants to prepare a feast and to slaughter the fattened calf, which was reserved for a most special occasion. There's music and dancing, we're told in verse 25. Signs of celebration and joy. What could be greater than a lost son returning home? The implicit connection, again, is that God rejoices in such a way when he saves sinners and restores them to a relationship with himself. So Jesus here is communicating, back again, verse 1, to the tax collectors and sinners, what God is doing for them. Jesus has come for this very purpose. They are spiritually lost. And this again, Jesus is communicating the truth to them about their situation. They are spiritually lost, but God has determined to save them through the ministry of Jesus. They are spiritually dead, but God is going to make them alive through the death of Jesus. God has sent Jesus to seek out and save the lost and bring them back into relationship with himself. Friends, this is true for us as well. God sent Jesus not just to seek out the tax collectors and sinners in the first century, but to seek us out and to save us here in the 21st century. The work that Jesus performed on the cross still has effect in this time, as he is calling sinners back into relationship with himself. That's the good news. That's the good news Jesus declared during his earthly ministry. It's the good news that we declare today. That Jesus saves sinners. And he did it by laying down his own life. He went to the cross. He died for our sins, for our sin problem. He paid the penalty of our sins the penalty that God required, laid his life down for us so that our sins could be forgiven, 
that you can be reconciled to God. What a glorious news that God, for the Christian, for those who will repent and believe, God no longer holds your sins to your account. Not only that, but he gives to us Christ's very righteousness. So that when God sees you as a follower of Jesus, he sees the righteousness of his very own son. So if you are not a Christian this morning, let the truth and goodness of the gospel awaken your heart. Receive this glorious gift of salvation. Do as Jesus said in verses 7 and 10. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. Trust in his sacrifice alone for salvation and you will be saved. And if you are a Christian already, how precious is the gospel of Jesus? How precious is what Jesus has done for us? Don't go looking for something else to motivate your living. The gospel is sufficient. It is the power of God for life and godliness. Rest in the gospel. Be satisfied in Christ. And receive all that God intends for you to receive in that relationship with him. John Newton captures the thought of these parables so simply and so poetically in his most famous hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Praise God that he searches out lost sinners and he finds them for his everlasting joy and for our everlasting salvation. That is amazing grace. Praise God for his salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these beautiful parables spoken 2,000 years ago. Words just as fresh and just as relevant as they were then. Because we, Lord, in truth, are tax collectors and sinners. We are in need of your salvation. We thank you, Lord, for your people. That at some moment in time, Lord, by your sovereign direction, we heard the gospel. That you did something. You came to find us. You came to awaken our hearts. You gave us, like the prodigal son, a moment of lucidity.